Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. In Richmond, Virginia. We're back in Richmond. Back after two years. It's been two years. since We had to skip a year in what's been known as the annual Gompert podcast. And we're back again, though, with David and Cindy Gompert in Richmond after skipping one pandemic year. Yeah. So uh, Cindy shall remain silent right? because she has laryngitis. She has laryngitis. But she's waving, she's waving. vociferously For those right of you now. watching on television. And David will, will, not, will not remain silent. silent. <laughs> There's nothing we can do about it. The laryngitis is apparently not uh, that contagious. So David will speak up and we'll, we'll manage that. Yeah. So the last time we were here, it was just uh, sort of the beginning of the pandemic There was a lot of discussion about whether we could go out for dinner, should we go out for dinner, should we stay in the house. And on our drive home north from Richmond is when I got the announcement that my schools were both going completely virtual. And that was the last time I saw students in person. Well, you know, we also ate at a restaurant. I'm sure you guys well remember. We closed down the restaurant. We were the last party they had, the last patrons they had. That's right. And... We suspected that Dan might have already had COVID. Uh, that's hard to tell, but I mean, yes, we did. We did. Uh, but in any event, so that's it's been two years. And uh, as far as I can tell, not a lot has happened in Richmond since then. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. A lot's happened in Richmond well, since then. the whole city, the, the entire metropolitan area missed your visit last year. Yes, that's true. They did. Um, but there's been, you know, a lot going on. But here we are again. We had a lovely dinner last night celebrating um, Ms. Granger's birthday. And we're glad to uh, do the podcast with the conference. This is known as one of the most popular podcasts we have. It truly is. I don't understand why. You well, it's it's a do. fine tradition. Yeah, I think six people listen to it. So that's, no, no, well, that's no. Near I'm telling you, it's, it's a number, it's, it's okay. an Arab, Arab number. By the way, something did happen in Richmond. We, yeah. we pulled down the monuments. No, I know that. I know quite, yeah, quite a bit of change in Richmond. Quite a bit has changed. And we're also at a new locale. You're in a new place. But I'd rather not talk about how much you paid for it. Because, you know, that's, that's private. Right. Moving right along. <laughs> right. Uh, well, so here's an article that Cindy found. And uh, I'm having to uh, describe it. You've been tasked with it. Well, <laughs> I've been tasked with it. You... Um, and it's from the New York Times. And the headline is, How Love Languages Made It to the Mine. And so the whole idea is, you remember love languages, Right. Yeah, I remember hearing about it. It was a book in 1992 (laughs) by the marriage counselor, Gary Chapman. Mm -hmm. And it was all about being able to speak to your love partner in a way, um, to be able to express your love, gratitude, whatever, in a way that was meaningful to the other person. Is this during a particular act? No. No. No, it's not. It it perhaps is... uh, with the idea of getting to the act. Oh, okay. <laughs> or, for some accurate. people, perhaps, or apologizing the act for, is the love language. Or apologizing prefer. for the act, yeah. which yeah. is another possibility. You've had a different experience than we have. So, <laughs> but, you know, um, it's a much more optimistic philosophy than, than yours. And it describes uh, a woman who is uh, a head of a um, head of corporate uh, development in a mining company, and she was struggling with her marriage. Her love language was acts of service. So if her husband wanted to make her feel loved, he had to, you know, do things for her. Right. Okay. His was quality time. I don't know what that means. Away from her. I, away from her. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. 
Anyway, once they figured it out, it enhanced their relationship. And she's like, why can't we apply this on the job? Okay. Yeah. And with the idea that, uh, you know, what means something outside of um, compensation. Yeah. Okay. What improves a person's commitment to the firm, loyalty, um, and uh, self-confidence uh, hmm. and appreciation, etc. Right. Do they want level. free coffee? Yeah. Do they want, uh, right. you know, employee of the month and they get uh, a better parking space, the good parking I, space I need for a while? I clarification, a lot of parts of my love language I would not want to take to the job. No, right. No, so there has the, to be no. some sort of a screen no, no. here. They're not going to call Cindy and ask, what is your love language? Right. Okay. They're going to talk to perhaps your coworkers or you. What is meaningful to you? You right. know, I don't drink coffee, so don't give me free coffee. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. Uh, that kind of thing. And so, or um, don't talk and to me so, at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, different companies are trying different just, just things. Just so with this, so love language is not confined to language. It's, it can or be love. actions. It can yes. be actions. Or yes. love. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's basically how you communicate in a way to make the employee feel more appreciated and enhance their performance. Yeah. Right. That's the idea. Right. Okay. Doesn't um, pay the rent. Right. But may um, you know uh, lead to well they say the benefits of that sense of appreciation have led to lower turnover fewer days missed reduction in on the job accidents right um, so it and, does pay the rent it has, it, it, real, it has economic benefits it so has economic benefits it pays okay. the bulldog um, right. well. For the company, but not for the individual who's being right. appreciated. Right. Okay, um, the, the chocolate, food trucks, uh, you know, all kinds of miscellaneous perks. And so, and, and in the case of the mines, one of the things they do is they get a sticker on their helmet for, you know, um, best miner of the week. I guess something yeah. like that. Is yeah. it, it's like the it's like stickers the on the. No. The Ohio football State. players have yeah. the stickers. The exactly. Yeah, you both are talking about the same thing. Yeah, yeah. The stickers yeah. on the helmets. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is an idea that uh, perhaps uh, you can apply. You, you've got to get the, the people on board, the um, powers that be. You've got to let the managers know they need to be showing the appreciation. To reinforce what you're doing. No, 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 no. They need to... Um, the managers need to understand that they need to show appreciation to their employees. Right. Right. Okay. Like oneself. All right. Yeah. But, right. but all right. So they just want to use this throughout the company. And um, Talk so to the question, boss. does it work is the question. Yes. Yes. That's what I said. They're, they're seeing reduced uh, accidents. <laughs> it's hard to believe it works. The minor, they have pictures in this article of people with helmets, you know, with uh, hard hats. And you, you can't imagine that they would be so easily influenced in a positive way by, you know, by yeah, well, uh, shows of appreciation. There, there's two steps. There's at least two steps to it. One is figuring out what the employee's love language is. Yeah, okay? okay. What would be meaningful compensation or, right. or whatever you want to call it. And two is, you know, making sure that happens. Okay. Right. Now, is there no room left for, like, reprimands? Criticism? <laughs> Well, then you have to find, you know, their reprimand language, I guess. Well, but you know, so, you see, that's an interesting point, and that takes us into another subject, which has good segue, which is baseball, because as you well know, I'm sure you're on top of this, the role of the baseball manager has changed over the last few years. The, the manager used to be identified as a guy who could be somewhat gruff, 
almost a disciplinarian, certainly an authority figure who, who would really kind of level with the players or be harsh with the players. It changed with Joe Torrey, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I, I don't know exactly when it changed, but during that era, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And now, each new manager who gets a job, it's like, it's a love language, right? Whenever you see a press conference with a new manager, I can think of there was recent Met managers would be the best example in my mind. You know, all they talk about is, I want to get to know the players. I want the players to understand I appreciate them. And every press conference after the game is just praise, 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 all right, praise. All right, taking a page from your questioning of Tamsin, yeah. does it work? Uh, it doesn't work in for the Mets. In W's and L's? It doesn't work for the Mets. <laughs> I can tell you that. Right. But but to be honest, Aaron Boone does it with the Yankees. Yeah. And the Yankees win. Well, would they win fewer games well, if he wasn't? That's the question. I don't know. I mean, it could be, you know, Aaron Boone would be 5'11 okay. instead of 6'7 if, right. if Aaron Boone did. But well, no. Just because you were so persistent with Tamsin in finding out whether it worked no, no, or no, not. No, you don't understand. I wasn't persistent. That's our love language. Oh, see, that's oh, what that's, you're not getting. Oh, I see. I have figured He's that showing out. interest. I'm showing yeah. interest. That's a New York love language, showing interest okay. by interrupting. We covered that in a previous podcast. Uh, but in any event, now that we're talking about baseball, mm-hmm. all right, there was an article in the Times, and of course there are a lot of buzz so, uh, so I understand no baseball. There's no baseball for the moment because there are negotiations. No opening day yet. Now, you wouldn't have opening day yet anyway. It's been delayed. Is, it was supposed to be at the end of this month, right? Yeah, yeah and it's, it'll probably be delayed, but you never know. But in any event, they're in negotiations now. They missed the deadline, which, which suggests that they're not going to make uh, the opening day schedule. And, you know, the, there are professionals involved in these negotiations, as you'd like to have. But the players are also Is that directly involved. Code word for lawyers? Yes. Okay. Yes. But they're also well, they getting nowhere fast. Well, they don't have pharmacists involved, but that's what you mean. But they they have some players are actually involved, sitting at the table negotiating. Notably, Max Scherzer, who is the the pitcher, a very successful pitcher in the major leagues, won several Cy Young awards. It's because of the love talk. Now, it's because he strikes out two hundred fifty players a year. But he's so he's there, and he's a Met now. Uh, but they, they had an interview with him in the New York Times, and he describes the issues. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really think he's well-equipped to do this, but that's fine. He's, he's a nice enough guy. I'm a Met fan. But they had, this discussion with Scherzer focuses on one aspect. They say, look, Scherzer's got his money, and the players like Scherzer have their money. They've signed. Scherzer's literally going to take in $40 million. And that's what, exactly what I said. $40 million dollars this, this year. year. This yeah, year. That's yeah. love language. No yeah. matter, <laughs> exactly. They no, knew it was love language. No matter how many games they play. Right. Well, no, that's not true. Okay. You, you make a good point. If they delay the season, then they, let's say they, have, they lose 16 games, which is 10%, he will lose 10% of his salary. So he'll only make thir- you know, $36 million. Mm-hmm. And Scherzer says, I am willing to lose $4 million because to me the cause is to sort of build up the, the minimum salary guys. The minimum salary guys. The minimum salary right now in baseball is $575,000 a year. That's Major pretty league. much what we paid for this condo. <laughs> well, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but now that you mention it, I think it's a little less than that. But, but my point is this. Are you curious about the Homeowners Association? No, not, not yet. Okay. $570,000. So what? one of the differences, one of the key differences in the negotiation is Major League Baseball wants to boost that minimum and get it up fifty thousand by fifty thousand dollars or seventy five thousand dollars to make it higher. I thought baseball was trying to suppress salaries. 
It's the union that's the trying un- to that, get that, it I meant the union. The union's trying to boost that. Scherzer's trying to boost that. Yeah. And that's where his sympathies lie. And he says, look, um, I don't care if I'm going to lose money. I'm ready for holding out. And I, I want to, it's important that these guys who come into the league um, make more than they're making now. Make more than five seventy. Make six fifty instead. Make seven hundred thousand dollars instead. Sounds good. One, two, one fact and one insight. The fact is this: I'll ask this to David, a knowledgeable baseball fan. Hmm? What percent of the players in baseball are making the minimum salary? Would you guess? Ten. Sixty percent. In Major League Baseball? Are making the minimum what, salary. What would you have guessed? Uh, uh, 60%. <laughs> 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 but I, what's bad about the podcast, because it's not visual, your jaw literally dropped when I said 60%. So, it, it, and, and it's, of course, why? It's because the owners have figured out, listen, I got to pay guys like Scherzer $40 million a year. I got to make it up somewhere. Yeah. And I'm going to get a lot of players who are first or second year players. However. Yeah. A raise for a minimally paid player yeah. would be a good love letter. Yeah, it and would. perhaps cause better performance. Right. Look, I, I'm not. I'm not taking a side of negotiations, but let me make one other point. Because you're what, not yeah, taking sides. No, I'm. I'm really not. But what Scherzer's saying is is, is is a little bit off for this reason. Okay, he says he's standing up for the players. All these guys, you know, in the minor leagues, make nothing. Make nothing. Right. And so the minimum salary raise it. Except there's one thing. The minor league players are not covered by the union. So the truth of the matter is only a small percentage of the minor leaguers will see the major leagues. And none of this will help the minor league guys. And the minor league guys make nothing. They make like 12000 It's amazing how Love of the game. Make. Yeah, love of the game. So if Scherzer's, And they know they're not going to make the Right. Major. So Scherzer is kidding himself if he's saying to himself, I'm really sticking up for the, the, you know, the real if little really, guys. You know, Max... If you really wanted to stick up for the little guys, you give them your money. You give them some money, <laughs> exactly. Get some love language out there. So, in any event, uh, I don't know. What's your guess? Just one line. When 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 are they going to resolve this? When are they going to start playing, David? Uh, two weeks. Okay, there you go. That's very. I I, I tend to no agree with you. I think that's right. Okay, uh, so you have something about some uh, well, pandemic I, problems. I I have some investment tips here. Um, yeah. I, I I want to preface this by saying. Back when we had the global financial collapse um, in 2009, 2010, it turns out that one of the best investments you could make would be in clinics that administered shots for visits to exotic places because the demand for such shots went way up because it costs a lot less to go to Ouagadougou for two weeks than it costs to go to Rome for two weeks. And you need shots for Ouagadougou. So this is a, um, if we had only known then, we could have made, uh, we could have made okay, good yeah. money. All right. Bye. Now, today, if you want to make uh, a bundle, it's probably too late, but you could have made a bundle on the pandemic by investing in pet food. Because pet appetites, pet consumption, and pet obesity... Well, not pet consumption. Nobody's consuming pets. Right? No one's consuming pets. Well, I guess if they get plump enough, you know, they, they, they could look appetizing to some people. But, no. Pets, like their owners, stuck in the house, suffer from anxiety, depression, stress, and as a consequence, they eat more. 
and more and more and more. According to the Banford Pet Hospital, which runs more than 1,000 veterinary clinics, cats, 40% of cats gain weight, appreciable weight. 35% of dogs gained appreciable weight. For example, we have the case of Pavlov, whose owner, interestingly, is a psychologist yeah. named Anthony Osuna. Surprise, surprise. And Pavlov went from 28 pounds to 23 pounds. To th- I'm sorry, no. went from 23 pounds to 28 pounds, right. which is, um, you figure, you do the math. It's, yeah, it's uh, 25% weight gain. Yeah. Weight gain, right. right. Then there's John Owen. Are you going to go up over every pet and tell us how much they gain weight? Uh, no, we'll do two more. Okay. <laughs> His pet is named Vita, yeah. a cat who, who gained uh, only five pounds, but she was already 16 pounds to begin with. And Owen now describes her as gigantic. Yeah. He says, of course, I put on pounds during the pandemic, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, that's an arguable point. Uh, now, the uh, the last case I want to mention is Senator Bucky. Senator Bucky not only was causing problems because of weight gain and eating scraps, but also breaking in to a neighbor's house to eat their dog's food. <laughs> so just just goes to show you how the need for dogs to. Or, yeah. or cats. This is to put on weight. Yeah, I think that's entirely bogus. To be perfectly frank with you, but okay, bogus. Is okay. it not possible that because the owners were home all the time, they were just feeding the animals more than that? Was part, that was part of the problem. They the owners yeah. were partly to blame, but now that the owners are going back to work, guess what the effect is? The, the animals miss them so much. The, the animals miss them. They're suffering from depression even more. Depression, anxiety, and stress. And they're eating even more. You know, it's, the animals are just a headache, let's face it. They're, they're depressed about this. They're depressed, they're depressed about the pandemic. Let out the cat. Depressed post, post-pandemic. Let out the cat. Now, they're just not worth the trouble. Okay, so if you don't want to invest in pet food, okay, fine. you should invest in granite. Yeah. Granite the reason has, for that is yes. the need for headstones. The reason for that is the mortality rate yeah. in the United States of America has gone up. The life expectancy has gone down. By significant numbers, life expectancy down like a couple of years for men, for women, not so much. That's always the way. That's always the way. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. So that's sobering. So, so the the problem um, that the headstone industry have is that orders are piling up, and as one of them said, you know, it's one thing if you have to back order a sofa for somebody, mm-hmm. if you have to back order. A headstone for somebody. There's a lot of counseling, you know, and a lot of explanation that's required. So, in in conclusion, Joe Casser, this is a big industry, by the way, on yes. the Lower East Side. Were you aware of that? No. Lower East Side of New York. This is the principal industry is making headstones in parts of the Lower East Side. In New York. He, in New York, he says, uh, but but they're going out of business rapidly because they don't have the granite yeah. and they don't have the workers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the workers, this is an old world craft and it's vanishing. So uh, I think we should um, keep in mind um, that the granite business is going up, the headstone business is going down, and the Mr. Casera declares, 
This is not just a problem for the city. This is a worldwide problem. Well, first of all, I'm surprised that there aren't substitute materials for headstones, and I think there are, honestly. Headstones, they're not headphones. No, headstones. Oh, That's okay. that kind of stuff, yeah. No, no, headphones. There's substitutes for headphones, too. But yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Um, granite is extremely hard. Yeah. Okay, so it makes a good, durable mm -hmm. headstone. Uh, you remember back in the day, people liked the white marble. Yeah. And uh, if you go to a cemetery, you see how the acid rain, etc., has really worn those down. As soon as you had um, the, actually, the development of power tools with the Civil War, mm -hmm. okay, um, allowed people to be able to um, use granite, yeah. the harder stone, uh, for headstones because it was easily carved by machinery uh, as opposed to and, hand. And, and they are using the same skills, the same techniques oh, today that so they used What, what you want I is a hard stone yeah. and granite uh, but I, but I think, fits the bill in I terms think, of affordability right. and uh, I take that point, but I also think that headstones now increasingly... The inscription is laser cut. Remember, we talked about that. Okay, so well, now we it have It depends on whether you're a traditionalist yeah. or, or right, not. Exactly. But in any, look, I, I want my no headstone yeah. to be cut by hand. Really? Yeah. Well, we better start working on it now, I think. Uh, you know. Well, I'm feeling pretty well, but I'll let you know if I <laughs> Well, that's, you talk about investments. So. <laughs> Get that going. All right, so go ahead. That, well, look, that is sobering. All right, I think it's time uh, to... Uh, turn a corner and uh, head into the more happier world of museum updates. And uh, so today we have uh, a new exhibition uh, opening uh, all over Florence, actually, uh, in the uh, Palazzo Strozzi and uh, also in uh, the Bargello. And I think those are the two main locations, an exhibition of Donatello's work. All right, so we, we think a lot about Michelangelo, et cetera. This is not uh, Larry Donatello that I went to high school with. Yeah. No, 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 no. It could have been. <laughs> same age, though. Same, same period. Uh, so, um, I don't know, do you, do you, does Donatello, like, ring? Versace. Oh, Versace Donatello, yeah. No. Nah. Do you think of Donatello as one of the, you know, household uh, words of the Renaissance or I, not? I certainly do. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So, and, and he is, but apparently, well, he's uh, one of the Ninja Turtles. Says, I know that. Um, you know, he's uh, been a little bit neglected. The preeminent uh, sculptor of the time isn't as widely known these days so that's as why other one-name Italian artists yeah. like uh, Raphael Michelangelo. So right. this is so mad. This is overdue. Yes. Overdue. And uh, people are calling it a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see his work you know he's um he was buddies with uh brunelleschi really okay so you know brunelleschi um for instance designed and built the dome yeah, yeah. Uh, for the great cathedral in florence um brunelleschi also was in a competition to um for the commission of the bronze doors on the pisa baptistry mm -hmm. okay he loses to lorenzo ghiberti and as luck would have it, uh, Donatello actually was an assistant to Ghiberti. But Donatello and Brunelleschi were buddies. Brunelleschi loses that commission, and he and Donatello actually head down to Rome. Mm -hmm. And they, they hang out in Rome. Brunelleschi is sketching the buildings. Donatello's sketching the sculptures, the ancient sculptures that are all over Rome. And while they're there, Brunelleschi invents, uh, you know, linear perspective. Oh. 
as a way to record these buildings mm-hmm. accurately. Right. And, uh, you know, and one thing leads to another. Meanwhile, Donatello is learning all kinds of stuff, including contrapposto in the ancient statues. That's the hip shift of the nude Greek statues that makes them seem to come alive as opposed to standing like sticks. Okay. I might so try the, that myself. This road trip <laughs> of these two alive. boys uh, to Rome and, you know, changes things dramatically when they get back to Florence. And you probably remember the wonderful, very sensuous David in bronze that the Medici uh, commissioned in from Florence. Donatello in Florence. Yeah. Okay, sure. that's one of the pieces that won't be moved. That's in the Bargello. So uh, there are going to be a, an enormous number of marble pieces, etc., in the Strazzi. But if you want to see that, um, you know, beautiful, they call it the first freestanding Renaissance sculpture, re- nude Renaissance sculpture. One of our favorites. Yeah, it's really it's really quite uh, lovely and dramatic, and is an interesting contrast with an earlier David he did, which was had more clothing and uh, was much more. Was right outside the so, Uffizi. So uh, Donatello is uh, you know great to see. So if you get a chance to go to Florence, actually some of the show is going to go to the um, V&A, but I think not when you're going to be there. Um, uh, I think that's uh, further along in time. It's also going to Berlin. So those are your chances, once-in-a-lifetime chance to see the work of a great Renaissance artist and uh, buddy of uh, Brunelleschi. But much as I'd like to ridicule this article, I, I find that I can't. It's just... It, Very exciting. Very and then exciting. There, then there's, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal has always an article called Masterpiece, and somebody writes about uh, some kind of work of art that they love. And this time we have Judith Dobrinsky who is writing about uh, the Brera altarpiece, um, which uh, is by Piero della Francesca. And you've probably seen it. Um, I have a small little picture here. It is. It was commissioned by my favorite gun-for-hire condottiere, Federico da Montefeltro. No. Yes. Really? Yes. And I just, you see him here. He's he was in balding. my biology class. He, <laughs> he's balding. He looks kind of like an accountant, but he's dressed in, um, uh, for this painting, this 15th century painting, um, he's dressed in armor. He, um, he, was, he was born illegitimate. He ends up the Duke of Urbino. And one of the reasons Despite he commissions, he commissions mm. this painting, okay, which has... Um, the Madonna in the middle, um, holding Jesus and surrounded by saints with a few angels in the background. Okay, he commissions this because he has killed a lot of people. He's mm. done some bad, bad things, uh, but he's now facing the end of his life, yeah. and he is Time trying to yes do things to win favor in heaven, especially from Mary. Mary will is known for interceding with uh, God the Father and Jesus on the part of sinners like um, Montefeltro. You notice this picture, I'm sure you noticed he's in profile. He's always in profile because he lost one of his eyes. You, you see him from the, the, is this the left side? In battle? Because he, no, in a uh, jousting match. Okay, and uh, he was so good. He was so good. My impression is he's a little chubby. At a certain point, he doesn't even need to fight. If the uh, the opposition knew that uh, uh, Montefeltro had been hired to uh, fight this battle, they would say, "Okay, okay, 
excuse me, we're out of here. Um, so, uh, so he becomes extremely powerful. But as I said, at a certain point, he's trying, he's commissioning religious works of art, religious buildings, etc., um, with an eye towards his demise. Now, one of the, the poignant things about this painting is it's very symmetrical. David's looking at it now. It's so symmetrical. Exactly same number of saints on one side as the other, Madonna in the middle, and yet there there is Montefeltro, but there's a gap uh, opposite Montefeltro on the other side of Mary. Symbolizing? His wife. His wife had passed away. Did His wife had died in child, period, oh. child uh, birth. Her name was Batista. That's why, if you look in the picture, you see St. John the Baptist. Because Batista Forza, Sforza uh, was named after John the Baptist. Batista Sforza? Sforza. Sforza. <laughs> Sforza. Um, and uh, so this is very much a, a tribute to her. I didn't see uh, any Sforza in there. In there. And, there, and there's, all kinds of, there's all kinds of wonderful symbolism in this painting. It's a great painting. It's at the Brera, uh, which is a terrific museum in Milan. And uh, so I can understand why um, this uh, art, this article is written for a masterpiece. And my and then, advice, Dan, is she is so enthused about yeah. museums yeah. that I would introduce into my love language I for have, I have. Believe <laughs> me. some museum chat. And it's, 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 yes, it's taking uh, a great deal of effort on my part, but yes. And then just a, a quick uh, obituary. Barry Bauman uh, passed away. He was 73 years old, though to conservator. And one of the things he's famous for was sussing out, as the Times says, a fake portrait of a first lady. Okay? Um, and uh, let's see how this starts. For three decades, a portrait of Mary Todd Lincoln hung in the governor's mansion in Springfield, Illinois. Illinois. Mrs. Lincoln was said to have commissioned... Francis Bicknell Carpenter, a celebrated painter who lived in the White House for six months in 1864, to paint it as a gift for her husband. Okay, and uh, decades later, um, you know, it's uh, hanging in the governor's mansion. They take it to be cleaned in 2011, and it turns out it's a fake. Okay, it was sold to people. Um, let's see how uh, how they say this. Um, uh, it it was sold to people with the understanding that it was uh, by Lincoln, but actually it wasn't at all. At all, um, it, it they the uh, conservator was able Did to get look her at money it back? and uh, say that it, it was a painting of some anonymous woman that was uh, kind of uh, pimped up. Yeah. They added a brooch. Uh, that uh, you know was a Mary Todd brooch to make it look like Mary Todd, and then sold to unsuspecting relatives as a, a real thing. So the value of it um, plummeted from three hundred thousand dollars to like should have invested Zippo. In that, that's yeah. what he said. Well, yeah. But listen, you know who else died? Just died. Gary North. Oh God. The Gary North. Gary North. Totally uh, unheralded uh, economist. Uh, he was quite heralded on the far, far right. right. And he believed that one could find in the Bible scripture that could uh, guide economic theory and yeah. economic policy. Well, was he right? No. Well, he, 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 he advocated stoning 
uh, for any bureaucrats, and I mean any bureaucrats, because he thought there should be. Well, no, no one's going to vote against that. But uh, yeah, well, yeah. that's true. That, that I don't know. That probably helped his platform. Um, all right. Well, anyway, so it says you know what I was talking about when those conservators look was, closely at something was, and they see you know that this is uh, fake and that's fake and and yet the you know you usually have you often have that family history that you hear in Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's so right. Uh, you know, compelling. Firmly right? believed yeah. in. Well, you know that's right. Well, the Antiques Roadshow is a whole trip onto itself, but it's interesting. Yeah, and at times I actually said sussed out. Yes, Which so I, stout. I've never seen headline. that in print before. Did, yeah. you, you've used to seeing that phrase. Never seen it in print. No, I never have. Sussed out. Yeah, yeah. well, sure. Use it on what you read. Yeah, apparently. I, I, all right, I, but uh, used so, frequently in mad. Uh, speaking <laughs> of sussing things out, I know you are very fond of that Dr. Bonner's soap. All right, soap. so Dr. Bonner's soap is a uh, soap that I use. It's a very uh, mild soap. We've right. talked about it before on the on the podcast have because soap. it was cited in the Wall Street Journal as. Very popular with celebrities. Oh, there you go. It's a like you liquid soap company. Uh, yeah, you know, as I, I, David, I'm sure notices this. I have very soft skin as a result of Dr. Bronner's. That's from but, eating but, oysters. No, no, no. Just saying, no, not as soft as your skin. Uh, That's because, because I eat more oysters. Exactly. Because we last night, night we did order the uh, extremely formidable uh, tower of something seafood tower. Seafood, seafood tower. tower and I ate the which came with west. oysters, and uh, David ate I, almost all the oysters. I ate the West Wing. Yeah, he ate, exactly. <laughs> Let's just say he had the smoothest skin coming out of at a dinner. So, uh, but Dr. Bronner's, if you don't have oysters, is, is a good substitute. Uh, and they make all kind. The soap is. Many uses, and they have different types, and I even use their shaving cream and uh, whatever. Uh, and not just me. A lot of people use Could it. Could be used as a lubricant? Uh, no. So they uh, are sold at Whole Foods. They're sold at a lot of uh, pharmacies, and uh, any place is a little touchy-feely. But it, interestingly, uh, they have, as the Times says, the liquid soap company best known for its teeny font labels, preaching brotherly love and world peace. And it's true. Every uh, container of soap has... How's that working out? Uh, well, I don't know if everybody's reading the labels, but the labels go on. They're about you know, 2,500 words. These long, detailed messages about uh, how we should be in the future and there should be one religion, et cetera, et cetera. I never quite got through the whole thing. But uh, they're known for that. But they're quite a successful company. Uh, and uh, what the article is, point, is focused on is that it turns out that they are one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, um, contributor to efforts to legalize psychedelic drugs. They believe as a cause. Do they also, is this a product line for them no, as well? No, not at all. No? Not, not okay. really. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it could be in the future, but that's really not the reason they're into it. Psychedelic shampoo, for example? Uh, it could be. Uh, they've donated more than $23 million to drug advocacy. Uh, includes scientists researching the healing properties of ecstasy, uh, activist groups that help decriminalize uh, magic mushrooms, uh, and a small nonprofit working to preserve uh, habitat for peyote, as well as other hallucinogenic drugs. Um, they, uh, it, it's a very interesting origin story, which the Times goes into here, which I was really not onto. But I am uh, now. The company was founded in 1948 by Emanuel Bronner, a German-Jewish immigrant and a third-generation soap maker. Um, he, uh, um, his parents were killed in the Holocaust. 
1945, not long after learning this fact, he landed in a Chicago, this is Emil, landed in a Chicago mental asylum, forcibly committed by his sister where he was administered, where he was administered electric shock therapy. After making an audacious escape, he hitchhiked to California where he began his lifelong crusade to heal mankind. Well, long story short, that meant making soaps on the one hand and handing out literature about his views about so mankind. He, so he, he consolidated, the, no, he consolidated he the business. Well, he, that's exactly what happened. First, he was, he was selling soap on the one hand and doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, he was handing out the literature about the world to do this. No one really was interested in the literature. And he came up with the idea, as you say, consolidate. He started putting mm -hmm. literature on the bottles of the soap. And that way he got his message out. Mm -hmm. So the story is that the company really built up momentum at Woodstock. They said that I bet. Uh, every uh, VW van that left Woodstock left with six bottles of Dr. Bronner's soap. And, uh, but they did it for the messages, not the soap. It's right? not clear. There was a combination of things. But uh, the company grew and grew. Uh, and he's kind of a, a nutty guy. Apparently, uh, he used to do business uh, while wearing a leopard print Speedo. Uh, that was his thing. Uh, he also... Uh, this was the son of the Holocaust victims? Yeah. And he also would answer the phone himself. There was a number on the, uh, with these long messages that, that would uh, go to these six rotary phones in the office, and Dr. Bronner himself would pick up the phone. Uh, anyway, the company ran into some problems at some point, uh, and by that I mean the IRS, because they decided that the, they, they should do their tax returns as if they're a nonprofit when they weren't really a nonprofit. So it almost put the company out of business, but they reorganized. They're now going great guns, and they're investing all this money into the development of psychedelic drugs, which they feel has, and they're not the only ones, obviously, but that has great potential for healing properties, yeah. uh, including uh, ecstasy for post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, there's a broken, Soft skin is another. So, no, so, well, soft skin is the soap, but uh, the other stuff um, that they're really into, what's it, ketamine? Um, Cadmium. Yeah, ketamine, yes, ketamine therapy for depression, which they think is, is perhaps the most promising thing at all, but also uh, promoting LSD and other uh, hallucinogenics. Uh, it, of course, the company is not Dr. Uh, Emil Bronner, or Emil Bronner is no longer with us. Um, they, so they asked the grandson who's running the company now what Emil Bronner would think about their efforts now to promote psychedelic drugs, and they say they're not sure. He was distrustful of Western medicine. I refuse to see doctors. But uh, the grandson says, we think Bronner would have improved. Quote, our grandpa was all about shifting consciousness and opening hearts and minds. He probably would have put LSD in his soaps. Uh, uh, maybe he would have. I think this is weird. Yeah. The whole thing is weird. The whole thing's weird. It is great soap. Uh, that, that's the main thing for me. It is great soap. But, uh, I think it should be handed out as a love message. Well, <laughs> It is a love message of the sort. sort. Of, yeah. Look, you the first thing you should do after uh, is go this, go wash. Is go no, is go buy yourself a Dr. Bronner for no other reason than to read the label. And yeah. uh, you'll fully appreciate You know, it in the morning I read the uh, Kellogg's uh, Rice Krispie label this and might, I can the, read this, this on those occasions when I do wash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yes, you don't want to 
confine yourself to those occasions because it's, okay. it's a long read. Okay, so that's what all we have today, Tamsin. I think yeah. we covered a lot. Uh, it's yeah, great to be back a, in Richmond. We're having a great trip. We, we forgot to mention that we stopped off in D.C. and uh, Sadie took me to a Caps hockey game. Oh, that's true. We did, we did go to Washington Caps. Which was a lot of fun yeah. to go to. And how does, and a, how does a pro-Putin Ovechkin uh, Very well they received. Still cheered for him. They cheered. They, they, they cheered. Oh, there's the tremendously warm reception for Ovechkin. They scored, but the place went crazy. Yeah. I mean, that was an issue. This was, I, I, Sadie, I might be in your shot. I think this was his first home game. Uh, but this was after the Mia Culpa. What do you mean? He did say he was against the war, if that's what oh, you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Good. Right. But and also, the hotel we were staying in uh, was across the street from the Capitol's uh, ice complex. Uh, practice facility, and there was an event going on there that where, involved where that? the professional women's ice hockey oh. uh, Are we league. still on the mic? And yes. the, uh, some of the girls, uh, the women on the, you know, involved in that were staying at our hotel. So we got to so meet Tamsin, them and check them out. I, I, I think we, yeah. we I should saw the, say it was great. These for women our were, listening audience that Tamsin was a great women's Hockey player. She wasn't, As time I, goes on, I seem to have gotten greater and greater. But, yeah. uh, so, yeah. but this is what So the Starbucks is sort of adjoined to, uh, adjacent to the hotel. It's attached. So there, there are some people there who are either officials or players with the Professional Women's Hockey Association. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of overhearing them. We can tell what's going on. Eavesdropping. And, and Tamsin uh, walks over there and introduced herself. So and and I played in the 1970s. This is the real Tamsin? Yeah. yeah the real, and, and they said... We know someone who played for Princeton a long the, time ago in the two thousands. In terms of the two thousands, that's like yesterday. Two thousands, we had to make a, our own skates. It was just know? a riot to be sitting. We're sitting there in the lobby, and women are walking in carrying equipment and these special um, baggages that hold your hockey sticks. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're in the and it was just fun. It was. Uh, I never thought I would well, live good. to see that day. Anyway, so it's been a great uh, birthday trip. Great to see you. And a great uh, again, podcast, I must say. Uh, I look forward to next year's and the year after. Yes, absolutely. And we'll have to see how we're doing after well, that. Yeah. So for Cindy <laughs> and David, this is Tamsin. And, and then Dan. Signing off. <laughs> and at, David, uh, for we, David. Yeah, we, we, we're, you're covered. And we'll see you next week. And if you keep up the maintenance payments, we'll be in this very spot a year from now. All right. uh, see you next week. Oh, you Bye-bye.